The following lecture was delivered at the 11th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Palm Desert, California, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture and encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson will now present a lecture entitled, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Frankly, I always find it extremely challenging to present a lecture or a talk or a class, a seminar or a workshop or a discussion on this theme of why do bad things happen to good people. The reason you all understand, because it's not a subject, it's not a theme, it's not an idea. I can lecture about ideas to the best of my ability. I can present classes on themes, on concepts. This is not a concept. This is raw, naked, vulnerable, and real. Pain is not an abstract philosophical theme. If it was, it would be much easier to talk about. But this is the question of all questions, the dilemma of all dilemmas, the challenge behind all challenges, the suffering and the agony that humans endure and have endured from the genesis of history as far as we know. The first parents of mankind, Adam and Eve, were also first forced to watch one of their children murder another child and bury him. That's one of the opening stories in the book of Genesis. And as history progresses, it doesn't always get better, or at least it doesn't look like it's getting better. There's a story I've shared in the past. It's a profound story, and it's an authentic story about a Jew who lived in Russia. His name was Reberish Meislish. He headed a yeshiva. His uniqueness was that he supported his own yeshiva. He did not have to fundraise. Now, for a Rosh Yeshiva, not to be able to have to ask for money, ah, that is a geschmack. Not to have to go to other people and say, I need your money. Why? Because he, has a, he had a good business on the side. He used to export lumber from Russia to Central Western Europe. And he would make a lot of money, and he supported his own Yeshiva and the students. And it was a re wonderful rabbinical academy, a Yeshiva academy that he Headed, he taught, he was a great Torah scholar, Rabbi Meislish. And he always saw that the demand was always greater than the supply. And there's tremendous opportunity here for expanded wealth. So one day, one winter, he leases forests from the Russian government, the Tsarist government. You know, Russia is huge, and Russian forests are endless. The quantities of lumber that Russia contains are one in the world, unique. He leases forests. He leases three huge ships through the Black Sea to go to Western Europe, to go to Central, to go to France, to go to Germany, and sell the lumber. He has to borrow hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of rubles to make this great investment, which will certainly come back with a lot of profit. And he would be able to live comfortably, not only he, but his children and his grandchildren. Mazel, or whatever you want to call it, there is a storm in the sea and the three ships go down. All the lumber is lost. Rumor comes back to the city, bearish Meislish, in a moment, turned from a wealthy, successful man to a poverty-stricken individual in debt, millions of ruble to investors, to lenders, primarily to the government of Russia. The Tsarist government, you can't play games. How do they break the news to a man? They choose one of the top, brightest students in the yeshiva. Go tell the Rebbe. Go tell our teacher the news. But do it with seichel. Do it with sensitivity. He approaches his teacher in the morning, knocks on his door, and he says, Rebbe, I am here to ask a question. He says, go ahead. Rebbe, the Mishnah says in Shraktate Brachot, a person is obligated to thank God 
for bad fortune, just as you thank God for good fortune. Rebbe, how? How can one say thank you to the Lord for negative events, just like positive events, without skipping a heart's beat, without blinking an eye? The rabbi says, oh, it's obvious. He says, really, what? Explain it to me. He says, well, it's based on two axioms of Judaism. Axiom number one, God controls and orchestrates everything that occurs in his world. Not only the big events, but also the small events. He orchestrates the details of every individual life from the moment of birth till the moment of death. Axiom number two, God is good. One plus one in math equals two. If God controls the entire world and God is good, equals two, this means everything that happens is good. When something good happens, you say thank you. He looks at his teacher and he says, Rebbe, come on. Come on, how can you say this with sincerity? Somebody experiences a tremendous blessing. Somebody experiences a tremendous misfortune. How do you say thank you for the tragedy, for the horrible event? He says, my son, emotionally it may be difficult to fathom, but I want you to think about it cognitively, intellectually. I say again, one plus one equals two. God runs the world. God is good. God runs every detail. There is divine providence. Whatever happens is good. You may see it. You may not see it. You may appreciate it. You may not appreciate it. You may see it today. You may see it in 10 years. You may see it in 500 years. You may see it in 1,000 years. You may see it in the next world. Maybe you won't see it. But it's good. There's something good, meaningful, purposeful, positive there is an end to the story and it's positive even though you may not feel it and emotionally appreciate it. He says, Rebbe, can I give a hypothesis? He says, sure. He says, let's say somebody comes to your home and says, all your three ships went down in the black sea. You lost all your lumber. Your yeshiva closes down and the rest of your life you're trying to pay back a debt. Your splendor down the drain. Your years of glory, nada, it's all over. What should be your response? He says, you just heard my response should be, Baruch Hashem, thank God for the wonderful news. He says, really? He says, of course, remember, one plus one equals two. God is good, God runs the world, everything is good. He says, Rebbe, last week you danced at your daughter's wedding with such joy. Should you maybe dance? When you hear this news, because it's such great news, he says, come to think about it, yes. I have to say this in Yiddish, and then I translate it. He said, Rebbe, hey, on tanzen. Rebbe, start dancing. Start dancing. A clever man he was. You know what he did? He fainted. He understood. He faints. His student runs out, brings a bucket of cold water, pours it over his teacher to revive him. He is revived. The first words he says after he is revived are these words. Now, I also don't understand the Mishnah. I find it offensive, foolish, and sometimes cruel when people stand up and explain pain, justify, rationalize pain, especially when it comes to somebody else. It's easy to tell somebody else there must be a silver lining. God has a plan. Those of you who unfortunately sat shiva, I remember when I sat shiva for my late father, the comments that some people make. You wonder, where do they make such people? 
I was once at a shiva house of a widow who sent her husband to get a heart transplant and it did not work. He died on the operating table. A woman comes into the shiva house. I'm sitting with her. She sits down and she looks at the widow and she says, you must regret your decision. I'm thinking to myself, wow, you're a rocket scientist. I would love to become your student. Who taught you such brilliance? And then there's people who sit down and say, oh, at least he's in a better place now. You ever got that one? Or at least he didn't suffer. Or at least it happened. Well, and I want to stand up and say, shut your mouth. Just show up. Be present. Don't become a lawyer for God. He's confident enough without your defense. You don't know. Just show up. Be present. How do you know why other people, why it happened? When it comes to the person themselves, suddenly I also don't understand the Mishnah. There is a humility that is necessary, a reverence that is necessary. People come to a shiva call, just show up. There's nothing you can say that will help take away the pain. It's about showing up and being present. And don't try to be smart, clever, sly, which in most cases is people covering up their own awkwardness. They don't feel comfortable being there, so they have to sometimes concoct some strange conversation rather than just looking somebody in the eyes and saying that you're sorry. And you're just here for them. And listen. And tune in. When Moses observes the burning bush, you remember the scene? What does God tell him? Take your shoes off your feet because you're standing on holy soil. The Medrash says the burning bush was a metaphor for Jewish history. Moses was watching the Jewish people who over the next millennia would often burn and not be consumed. And he approaches the bush and he wants to understand. And the master of the world tells him, take your shoes off your feet because you're standing on sacred soil. Meaning, when you're in the presence of somebody who endured pain in their life, you are standing in the presence of holiness. In the presence of holiness, you don't philosophize. In the presence of holiness, you take off your shoes. Because a person who has been through a painful experience, never mind a profoundly painful experience, never mind endured pain more than once, they operate on a different plateau. They look at life differently. Life is something different for them. Death is something different for them. Love is something different for them. They take nothing for granted. Health is seen as something different for them. They are in a different place. They are in the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, you have to be sensitive to the sacredness, to the mystery. Don't make light of the mystery. Just because you are dealing with your own awkward or difficult emotions. I'm going to tell you one of the most powerful experiences I had, and it taught me volumes. I could have set in, at a two-year seminary, series of lectures on grievance and pains and psychology and, and counseling people and grieving counselors and so forth, I learned more from this conversation. I once met a mother. She actually approached me after a lecture. It was in Manhattan. And she told me the following story. She had a son who was diagnosed with cancer at a young age, around four years old. And he went through chemo and the various processes. And one day, this little, cute, angelic boy turns to his mother. He's maybe four or five at the time. And he asks her a question. You know what the question was? Why did this happen to me? She tells me these words, Rabbi Jacobson, I was stupid. I was ignorant. She was a balas tshuva, meaning she returned to Jewish observance later in her life, and she said, I was trying to be this righteous woman. Somebody I was not, but I was trying to be this righteous, good woman. And you know what I told my son? Prob 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 probably, 
at a pre in a previous reincarnation you sinned and now you're cleansing the blemish you're fixing it and she tells me my son did not respond but he turned his gaze away from me and I knew I failed him I failed my boy six months later he asked me the same question why is this happening to me she tells me rabbi i thought i was smarter by now and you know what i told him i told him god tests tzaddikim you must be a tzaddik you are a righteous person god tests righteous people she tells me he turned away his gaze I knew I failed him again. They cleaned up the cancer. He went into remission. He went back to functioning as an ordinary child. It came back a few years later with a vengeance. He is 11 years old now. Very ill in the hospital. He looks at her again for the third time in his life. And he says, Mommy, why did this happen to me? And she tells me, now, after so many years of suffering and pain, not only from his perspective, also from her experience as a mother, I became much more sensitive. I looked him in his eyes and I said, his name was Yosef, Yossi. I said, Yosef or Yossi? I don't know. I don't know. She tells me he did not turn his eyes away. He kept on staring at me. Our eyes clicked. Two weeks later, he passed away. 11 years old. I understood, but I wanted to understand more. I asked her why. And she said these words. She said, Rabbi Jacobson, because the last time I finally paid tribute to his experience, I did not try to fit it in to my box. I did not try to make myself feel better. I paid tribute to what he was experiencing. I did not try to minimize it. I did not try to make it trivial or small or make it fit into the context of history and to the context of religion and to the context of my faith. I looked at him and I said, I don't know. I was respectful of the intense journey of pain that people go through. And that's what he wanted. He knew I'm not a prophet. He wanted the validation of the depth of the suffering that he was enduring. Just validate it. Just be there. Just hold my hands. Just look me in my eyes. So whenever my students ask me, Rabbi Jacobson, what do we tell people? We meet people all the time. Rabbis have to answer this question all the time. Rabbi, why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to my wife, to my child, to my father, my mother, my brother? Why, 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 why? And I always tell them, I don't know what you should answer. All I'll tell you is what not to do. Don't. Tell them why. So they say, why? <laughs> say, for two reasons. First of all, because you don't know. Second of all, even if you would, which you do not, you think when most people ask why, they are seeking a mathematical equation. This is a question that's not coming from a cerebral abstract mind this is a question that's coming from the heart from the soul from the guts from the kishkes if you're going to give a comfortable nice mathematical answer you're not answering their question and in life you don't answer only questions you answer people they may be saying why but what they're asking is how how can this happen to me how am i supposed to go on let's say you have an interesting answer which you don't it's not what they're asking usually and therefore, if you could put out your shoulder to them and let them cry on your shoulder, if you can embrace them, you are giving them a much more adequate, real answer than if you start philosophizing some ideas 
that you may have created in your own mind. Take your shoes off your feet because you're standing on sacred soil. I know that some rabbis are inclined to become God's lawyers. But sometimes it's coming from a very misguided place and it displays either foolishness or cruelty and I would like to choose the former option. Einstein said two things are infinite, the universe and stupidity and the latter is more infinite than the former and in this question and answer one sees it quite palpably. Which now brings us of course, to the question. Okay, empathy, sensitivity, mystery, I got it. But how does this answer the question? You know what? It doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. And to truth be told, Truth be told, in all of Judaic literature, in all of the books, after all of the explanations that there are, namely, there's the next world and there's reincarnation and there's cleansing and there's empathy, all the explanations, at the end of the day, Judaism's probably best explanation consists of three words. We don't know. We really don't know. In fact, I want to share something very special with you. When Moses is standing at the burning bush and he takes off his shoes, you know what happens next? God introduces himself from the burning bush. Do you know that? The beginning of Exodus, God tells Moses, I am God. I am the God of your father. What's the next scene? Does anybody remember? What's the next scene after that? This is a national Jewish retreat. Let's learn a little Chumash. I know Jews don't like learning the Bible. You could have a Bible on your night table. It's not only a Christian book. You remember what Moses does when God introduces himself from the burning bush? I quote, Moses hides his face. He doesn't want to look at Elohim. What does this mean? You just said, wow, let me see this major vision. You want to come close? Suddenly God says, hey, I'm here. Ah, I don't want to see. What happens? And the Talmud says in Tractate Brachas, page 7a, that as a reward for Moses hiding his face, you know what he merited? In the book of Numbers it says, Usmunas Hashem Yabit. He merited to gaze at God's visage. I never understood this. Because he didn't want to look at God, what's the reward? That he got to look at God. It's like saying, because you did not want to eat cheesecake, the reward is you get cheesecake. There's a reason he doesn't want to eat cheesecake, because it's poisonous for him. Women, I'm just trying to help you out at this retreat so your husband doesn't have to go to the doctor after. It's because he didn't want to eat cheesecake because it's full of poison, because he's a diabetic. So the reward is we give him cheesecake to kill him. <laughs> because Moses didn't want to look at God, so the reward is he sees God. That's what the Talmud says. Brach is 7a, you can look it up. My friends, my friends, my holy brothers and sisters, the answer is as follows. Moses was given a special opportunity that moment. God says, I'm God, look, look at me, look at this burning bush. Look at this burning bush, indestructible bush burning. It's me, it's God. What God was telling Moses is, I will give you now a once in lifetime, once in history opportunity to be able to see me in pain, to be able to see me in the flames, to be able to look at the flames of destruction and say, I see God in those fires, in those flames. That is the opportunity I'm giving you, Moses, the great teacher, the great prophet, to be able to see God in the pain. In other words, to be able to see pain from God's perspective. What is he thinking? How does he see it? What is the meaning? What is the purpose 
What is the destiny? What is the end of the story? Why? And you know what Moses does when God gives him that offer? You know what he does? He hides his face. He tells God, I don't want to see. Why not? Why not? If you were given that option, if you were given that option to understand the mystery of pain from God's perspective, what would you say? Would you say yes or you would say no? Moses said no. I want to tell you why he said no. He said no for the following reason. He said no because there are two types of pain in the world. There is pain that has a rhyme and reason to it, and there is pain that is illogical. There is pain that we can appreciate how it produces benefits. For example, waking up in the morning. Painful for some of us. Going on the treadmill. Very painful for some of us. Jogging. Purgatory for some of us. Not eating everything we see. Hellish for some of us. Going to work. Stressful. So why do you do it? Why do you wake up in the morning? <laughs> Good question. Why do you go to work? Why do you exercise? Why don't you eat? And the answer is, the pain is worth it for the benefits. You need a paycheck. People go through surgeries. You take the splinter out of your child's finger, even though he's screaming, Mommy, stop it! You're killing me! Because you don't want it to develop into an infection. That pain we can deal with. When we see the benefits that come from the pain, we made the surgery, the person got another 20 years, we say, I got it. Most of us are ready to endure pain that produces palpable benefits. The Mishnah says, Lefum Tzara Agra, reward is commensurate with the work and the toil and the pain you put into it. Anything worthwhile in life demands some stress and some toil. You want to graduate from medical school? There are going to be many sleepless nights, but you understand why. You're depriving yourself from sleep because you want to become Dr. Goldberg, Dr. Schwartz, not just Rabbi Goldberg or Rabbi Schwartz. You want to be a mensch. Got it. <laughs> you know, they say, right? They say you have a normal, a mother once said, a normal Jewish child, a doctor. If he's slow, a lawyer. If he's extremely slow, an accountant. And if he's Meshuggah, a rabbi. So you want to become Rabbi Goldberg, Dr. Goldberg? It takes toil. That's one type of pain in the world. But then there's another type of pain in the world. There's pain in the world that we do not see. What is the benefit? A family of nine children lose a parent. A baby never knows a mother. Parents bury a child, two or more. People suffer tragedy, loss, grief. And you say, why? A million and a half children gassed in Auschwitz. Why? What's the benefit of this pain? Who gains from it? Where's the growth? Where's the benefit? Ah, this pain drives us crazy. This pain defies our imagination. You know why? We cannot make peace with this pain because we don't appreciate. Who gains from the fact that a whole family is orphaned? Who gains from the fact that the husband lost his young wife, the wife lost her young husband, has to raise a family on her own? Parents buried. Who gains from it? This pain one cannot make peace with because it defies the imagination. When we can understand the purpose, the pain is already less. Moses told God, I don't want to understand the reason for pain. You know why? Because Moses knew. The moment he would see pain from God's perspective, you know what would happen? He would not be able to empathize with his people the same way. When somebody would come crying to Moses, he would never be able to hug him and embrace him in the same way if he understood the purpose of it. At the end of portion of Shmois, he turns to God and he says, Why are you torturing these people? He would never be able to ask that question with sincerity if he would have understood it from God's perspective. When I'm taking out the splinter from my baby's finger and my baby is screaming, Ah, stop! I empathize, but I don't really empathize. How do I know? I continue doing it because I know how important it is. I know how beneficial it is. I know how good it is. I, I'm not on the same team like the child. I know that the splinter got to go out. Moses tells God, 
I reject your offer because I want to remain there for my people. And that's the moment God chooses him as the first leader, as the first Rebbe, as the first Manhig Yisrael. This is his greatest moment. The greatest moment of Moses is when he rejects heaven for the sake of earth, when he says no to God for the sake of his children, when he tells God, I have to remain on earth. My perspective has to remain an earthy perspective. I have to be able to look at pain and say, why? So I should be able to be a source of comfort for my people. I should be able to cry with them empathize with them, sigh with them, pray with them, scream with them, and most importantly, I should be able to fight evil, fight Pharaoh, put an end to the torture, to the suffering of mankind. Let my people go. I would never be able to do it with passion if deep down in my heart I say, hmm, I appreciate the splendor of exile from God's bigger perspective. That was Moses' greatness as a leader. Moses didn't want to understand. We want to understand. There's a reason we don't understand. God does not need us to understand pain. You know what he needs us for? To stop pain. To help people in pain to grieve with people in pain, to cry out against pain, and to do what we can to eliminate the suffering of humanity and of the Jewish people in this world, including to challenge God and say, heal your world, heal your people. I'll never forget this scene. It was Sukkot 1983. Sukkot is a happy time. It's the happiest holiday of Judaism. And I was in 770. The Lubavitcher Rebbe was talking about Mashiach and he asked the question, what's the purpose of this long and stretched out exile? And he started to cry like a baby, literally like a baby, on Sukkot in public. And he says, it seems that God did not reveal any reason of why the Jewish people and humanity suffer so much because he wants that we should not understand, that we should fight, we should pray, we should scream, and it should be genuine, and therefore, there's absolutely no logic for it that we can make peace with. Not with our animal soul, he said, and not even with our godly soul. Which, my friends, this brings me to a letter which in my mind is a unique letter, a very interesting letter. As far as I know, it's the longest letter that the Lubavitcher Rebbe wrote to an individual, as far as I know. It goes for around six or seven pages, and he used to write much shorter letters. He sometimes wrote a two-page letter, a three-page letter, but a six, seven or more page letter, of, I never saw such a long letter to an individual. It's dated 24 Nissen, 5,725, 5725, or in English, 1965, a few days after Passover. It's written to a young man, a budding Jewish journalist. At that time, he is not so well known. He worked for the Yiddish press. He was a writer. He started to lecture. Soon he would leave journalism to become a full-time speaker, lecturer, author, and ultimately he would become one of the most world-renowned Jewish personalities. But in 65, he was still beginning his career, relatively speaking. His name, Eli Wiesel, who passed away, as you know, a few weeks ago. Who is Eli Wiesel? So you know from the news, uh, the news reports, Nobel Peace Prize, but before that, Elie Wiesel was born in 1928 in Hungary, in Romania, a little city called Sigit, very Hasidic town. His family belongs to a dynasty of Hasidim known as Vizhnitsa Hasidim, with big centers today in Bnei Brak in Israel, a center in Muncie. And uh, he grows up as a very pious, Hasidic, observant Jewish boy, steeped in learning, steeped in Jewish observance. 
1928. He is 14 years old when the Germans march into his country and the transportations begin. Ultimately, he loses his mom. She is killed. Sister is killed. Most of his family is killed. Baby sibling is killed. He and his father go to Auschwitz. He and his father almost survive. His father dies literally a few days before liberation in 1945. He's in Auschwitz. He's taken to Buchenwald. He's liberated in Buchenwald in 1945. His father dies a short time before that. His name is Eliezer. His father's name is Elisha. He's a young teenager left alone in the world. He, he will ultimately learn a long time later that two sisters survived while the other siblings and his parents both perished. He was a close friend and colleague of my late father. They were both Yiddish journalists in the 50s and in the 60s. Journalism was then a very interesting career. It's not like now that you get the news before it happened through the WhatsApps. Then journalists actually played a very important role in life and in Jewish life. So they spent long nights in the corridors of the United Nations as correspondents, and they built the kinship that journalists used to build due to a very interesting type of work together, and they remained lifelong friends. Elie Wiesel, I remember, once came to our house, and he was schmoozing with my father, and he told my father that... His father was holding on to a little piece of bread in Auschwitz. And Eli was starving. And he said to himself, I wish my father dies right now so I could get his bread. And he says, this is what the Germans did to us. That a 15-year-old boy, his deepest desire in life should be that his father dies so he should get his bread. And as a Jewish kid, this pained him for the rest of his life, that he could pray for his father. His father died. He got his piece of bread. Not in Auschwitz, in Buchenwald. Wiesel didn't talk for many years. Like most survivors, he did not talk. Ten years after the war, he writes a book in Yiddish. 850 pages! You don't know the book. 850 pages. The title of the book is The Welt hat geschwiegen. The world was silent. He gives it to a publisher. They say, 850 pages? Nah. Cut it down. Cuts it down to 150 pages. Gets rejected by many publishers. Finally, it's published as the book known as Night. His first work. In the book, he describes the first night in Auschwitz. The ovens were full. This is 1944, Hungarian jury. Between Pesach and Shavuos, Auschwitz was then perfected. Hess bragged that in 60 minutes, he takes the Jews from the train to become ashes. 60 minutes. He was proud of himself. The ovens were full. So the first night in Auschwitz, they made a big fire. They threw in the children. Wiesel watched it, and he describes a night how he saw that scene, and he saw somebody else in the flames, his God. His God was burnt in the flames. He lost his God. Fifty years later, 1996, he would pen an op-ed page for the New York Times on the day before Rosh Hashanah. The theme of the article is, it's time to make peace with God. It's too hard to be estranged for so many years. 1996. Elie Wiesel ultimately becomes a voice for the survivors. He becomes a voice for Holocaust victims. When he died, President Obama defined him as the conscience of the world. It shows the moral power that a Jew has when he chooses to use it. But that's a separate subject. 1965, I'm surprised, the Lubavitcher Rebbe writes the longest letter to this young man. Apparently he had a sense 
about the influence and power he may yield in the future. And in this letter, an extraordinary letter, he addresses this question. I am going to, it's a very long letter, I'm going to read a few excerpts of this letter because here is a conversation between two people. The Rebbe was older than Elie Wiesel. The Rebbe was born 1902. He was born 1928, almost three decades older than him or 25 years older than him. But they met many times. And I heard from Wiesel that uh, he said this at my father's uh, Shloishim, that uh, my father encouraged him very much to meet the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Before he went, he prepped him, he told him. So he was, he was involved in that first meeting, and he went in and he spent there a few hours. I think he said two and a half or three and a half hours. And then he kept on coming back. And they had very long conversations, primarily about theology. And then Elie Wiesel would come to a lot of Fabrengans of the Rebbe gatherings, and he showed up over the years. When he won the Nobel Prize in 1985, the Lubavitcher Rebbe wrote him a long letter, what to do in this position, how to use it to enhance the world. A long, extraordinary letter that he wrote to him. So they had a very interesting relationship. This is the letter of 65. Okay. He speaks about other things, but I want to address this topic. Why do bad things happen to good people? Okay. I agree with you that the question of why can only be sincere when it comes from the pained heart of a deep believer. Who was the first man who screamed, why will the judge of the world not behave justly? It was Abraham. Who screamed, why Moses? Why? Because if somebody doesn't believe there's a God, the question why doesn't make sense. In fact, I would say, atheism has one advantage. It explains evil elegantly. When somebody says, why do good people suffer? The atheist answers, why not? So atheism answers the question of evil very elegantly. The problem of atheism is it doesn't answer any other question. For example, the harmony of creation, the design of creation. But a person who believes in God, he is the one who asks the question, why? Which really means, friends, what the Rebbe is implying here, and what he wrote in another letter to a young girl who asked this question, that everybody asks why. Do you know one person who doesn't deep down say why? Which means that deep down everyone feels that there is some order to the world, that there is some core of goodness if not, why you're asking why? There's no question why. Why not? A world that is random. The whole world is a mistake. Why do you want nature not to be blind to the difference between good and evil people? How do you expect this from nature? It's not fear. What do you want from a random universe that just happened to emerge after 15 billion years from the primordial soup or primordial chalant? What do you expect? Only if you believe that there is a moral presence at the core of reality. There's somebody who cares. There's somebody who's responsible. Can you say why? And yet, I am wondering why you did not continue the same thought process and bring out the next step of this conversation. When Moses saw the fate of Rabbi Akiva, who would be combed by the Roman, he would be flayed by the Romans, and Moses asks God, the Talmud says, this is the reward for Torah. God says, be quiet. What does God mean, be quiet? Does he mean, be quiet, don't speak? What is that going to help? He said, be quiet is not only about verbal communication, it's about an entire approach to this reality. But why? So God says, be quiet, this is my plan. 
why did this not weaken Moses' faith? Why did it not weaken? Why did Moses remain a man of faith, Abraham and Job, all after terrible suffering? Why? This is not a coincidence. It could not be any other way. And here the Rebbe shares a very deep philosophical insight with Eli Wiesel. He says, how deep, how deeply are you bothered by the question of good and evil? Is it just because it's uncomfortable? Because it hurt you personally? Is it just an emotional question? For these people, this question came from the core of their heart. They had such a feeling for justice and righteousness that when they saw the absence of justice in the world, it tore their heart apart. Where does such a deep feeling of justice and righteousness come from? It comes from the conviction that true justice is justice that transcends human rationale and imagination. Why should we be good people? Why should we be moral people? Why should we be just people? Is it only because it makes sense, because it's logical? Other people have different perspectives. No, they felt justice is absolute. It comes from the deepest place. In other words, it comes from a place that is deeper than intellectual understanding. It's deeper than human understanding. It's deeper than human emotion. And that's why the question doesn't only affect your emotion, doesn't only affect your brain, it affects the core of your reality because justice is rooted in the core of your reality. The core of your reality cries out and says, why? Because the feeling that things should be right and good and people shouldn't suffer is not just because your mind would like otherwise or your heart would like otherwise, which everybody knows is circumstantial. For the Nazis, Jews were like mice for other people. And gypsies and blacks and homosexuals and mentally retarded were like cockroaches for other people. It's conditioning. And 80 million Germans, or at least many of them, went along. But for them, the need for morality, for respect, for goodness comes beyond a place of intellect or emotion because we like it, because our society is conditioned. You could train a society to behave otherwise. Look at the suicide bombers. There are 1.5 billion Muslims in the world. If only 1% of them believe in jihad, we have 16 million Muslims believing in jihad. If 5% believe in jihad, we have 80 million Muslims who believe that every Jew and every Westerner should be blown up to pieces. 80 million, that's a lot of people more than all the Jewish people put together. So it's conditioning. It's conditioning. It's indoctrination. Their question didn't come from conditioning. Their question came from the core because they believed in justice, that it comes from a place beyond the human mind. If that's the case, the person realizes. If that's the truth, then the entire premise of the question must be put in perspective. How can I understand with my mind that which transcends my mind? How can I try to wrap my brain around the reality of the divine which completely transcends human imagination? The entire approach to try to comprehend and to box into my brain that which by definition infinitely transcends my mind is Something I have to be able to tell myself. To respect the mystery. To respect the enigma. To pay tribute to the riddle. And to say, I don't get this. And therefore he says, and I have to read the Yiddish. This is Lubavitcher Rebbe's prose. Almost poetry to Eli Wiesel. After a huge internal struggle and turmoil, he says, I still believe, and even stronger than before, because this teaches me that there has to be some depth here that I really do not get. Then the letter goes on to a whole other topic, namely what Nazi Germany teaches us about morality, civilization, justice, goodness, devoid of God. 
the lessons of Nazi Germany in terms of the European Enlightenment. A fascinating, fascinating, fascinating letter. Then, after four pages, he says, allow me to get personal. I read all of your works about the world being silent, and I say this. To remember and not forget is an imperative. It's positive. It's a biblical commandment to remember what has been done to us by Amalek. Especially today in 65, the growing tendency is to forget the Holocaust and make other people forget it. But that is one part of our obligation. There's another part, and that is not to remember the Holocaust only, but to do something against Hitler, to fight Hitler. How? How? We need to grow and expand and encourage all of our people to rebuild the Jewish nation, to do the exact opposite of the final solution. And in everything in life, if you want to lecture and be successful, you need to show a living example. You need to demonstrate to the world that not only was Hitler unsuccessful, but after you will build a big Jewish family with sons, daughters, and grandchildren. As important as it is to tell the generation what happened, and as difficult as it is to liberate yourself from the horrific dark memories, I believe your responsibility right now is you need to begin living. Get married. Establish a family. This will contribute to Hitler's defeat. You were born as a Vizhnitzah Chassid. He wanted to decimate Vizhnitzah Chassidim. You will show that there's a Vizhnitzah Chassid still alive. You will raise children and grandchildren Vizhnitzah Chassidim. I'm not making a joke. I don't care if he's a Vizhnitzah. I don't care if he's a Lubavitcher. And I don't care if he's just a Jew observing Torah and mitzvahs. Is this too of a long letter? Maybe. But if after Shavuos I hear that you got married, but Mazel Tov... It was worth my writing, and it was worth your reading my long letter. Eli Wiesel, as you could see here, told the Rebbe he does not want to get married. He does not want to bring children into a world that can wipe out a million and a half children. A few years later, Eli Wiesel married his wife, Marion Wiesel, who was his translator of his French books. He was his translator into English. And in 1972, he had a baby boy. And this boy had a bris one week after my bris. Because Elie Wiesel told me, he says, I came to your bris, and your parents or your father came to my son's bris. And at the bris, he named his son Elisha, which was the name of his father, after his father. At the wedding, I heard from him, many people sent him bouquets of flowers. But the largest and most impressive bouquet of flowers was sent to him by the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Here is one letter from a Rebbe, a survivor himself in some ways, to a survivor. Thank you very much.